This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Matthew Sharp. Matthew is an Associate Professor in Philosophy at Deakin University. He joined me to talk about his upcoming lecture, Philosophy and Evil, as well as existentialism and the work and relevance of Albert Camus. I studied philosophy at uni and it was one of the best things I ever decided to do, I've got to say, and it certainly changed my whole outlook on everything I look at really in politics, in history, my own life, and I'm sure that must be the case for my next interviewee, Dr Matthew Sharp, who is an Associate Professor in Philosophy at Deakin University, and uh, he's, gosh, a bit of an expert on almost everything and certainly on the subjects I really like, so I'm very excited about that particular fact. He actually um, knows a lot about classical philosophy and we're thinking about people like Plato and Socrates, but he is also an expert in psychoanalysis, existentialism. I think he has a strong interest in stoicism as well. And he's written a lot recently about Albert Camus, which is uh, really fantastic because I think he's been recognised as a great author and he's been associated with existentialism for a long time. But there is some grey in that uh, particular association. And there's a little bit of um, politics between Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus. And I believe even Camus may have had a relationship briefly with Simone de Beauvoir. There was a lot of um, interconnection going on and I spoke with someone, gosh, I think it was about a year ago now, um, Agnes Poirier, about the left bank and uh, the many, many interconnections between those intellectuals, personal and professional. So we're going to be talking about existentialism and evil, which is the subject of Matthew's lecture tonight at the Existentialist Society in East Melbourne and much more than that. So let's welcome Matt now. Hi there, Matthew, and thank you for coming in and talking with us today. G'day, Amy. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, pleased to be here. It's a pleasure. I'm very excited. Now, let's get into some really exciting subjects, and they are pretty big, so obviously um, we can narrow things down a little bit. But for those who may be listening and didn't have the opportunity or choose to study philosophy, because I know a lot of people would think of that name and find it daunting, as I did, and certainly, thank God, the first subject I ever did was not too scary and was taught by a wonderful man named Chris Cordner. I know Chris, yeah. Yeah, he's fantastic. And existentialism was a really important part of the curriculum and for very good reason. It is still very influential today and it was a really important development in the 20th century because of the times they were in, I guess. So for those maybe who have not had an exposure to philosophy and have heard of people talk about existentialism, existential angst, what does it mean in a philosophical sense? Well, look, there's there's a few different strands, but I'll, I'll have a crack at just giving you a couple of answers. Um, so existentialism, you mentioned Sartre, so why don't I start with Sartre? Mm. So Sartre says that Human beings are, and I'm going to have to use a little bit of tech language, our existence precedes our essence, okay? Now, that, that's relatively technical. What does he mean? He means that a table, if you want to make a table, you've got an idea of a table in your head, that's its essence, and then you make the table. We don't really have a preformed essence, Sartre believes. We have an existence, we're here... And then we've got to make up our minds, as far as Sartre can see, as to what we do with that existence. So existentialism is its a philosophy that kind of emerges 
uh, as Amy's indicated, and really comes to prominence 30s and 40s in Europe. Huge times, war, crisis, um, yeah, you know, um, the Holocaust, uh, Stalinism. People are being faced with extraordinary choices. And there's also a sense that the old answers aren't working. So the old ideas, in particular the old Christian ideas, aren't speaking uh, to younger generations who are being thrown into these situations. And it's in this context that Sartre writes his book, Being a Nothingness. It's pretty weighty, isn't it? It's quite a large book and very dry. It's 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 a big one, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, and you know, with a title like "Being a Nothingness," um, <laughs> you're sort of you, you, you're pre-warned, aren't you, that uh, you're in for for not a light read. <laughs> um, the other figure that you mentioned, Albert Camus, is associated with existentialism. We can talk about that. He has the idea in his early work, which is is related but not identical. And he says, "Well, there's something absurd about human existence. We find ourselves." faced with the responsibility of living a life where there are no clear ultimate answers. And there's something, you know, as Kundera said, unbearably light but maybe unbearably heavy about that. And, you know, here's a guy who was a resistance journalist. Some of his mates were put up against a wall and faced, you know, Nazi justice in inverted commas in the form of a rifle squad. So heavy times, heavy subjects, but this sense that... Here we are, what do we do with it? The ultimate answers that were previously given maybe aren't really speaking to the kinds of immense crises we're facing. That's where existentialism gets its kind of urgency and its popularity in the 30s and 40s. Mm. And there's an important kind of uh, moral element to this. A lot of people, when Sartre delivered this lecture called Existentialism is a Humanism in English, of course he spoke in French, but it's a really uh, important text to look at. It's also very accessible, I think, in a relative sense compared with being in nothingness. Yeah, absolutely. And it does introduce people to this concept that you've said which is existence precedes essence but a lot of people have said well you know what then guides people and why would they choose to be good and do good things you know what is the moral dimension to existentialism if there is one and why would someone have a good conscience or act in good faith as um, Jean-Paul Sartre introduces and that's an important element given that previous philosophers like Immanuel Kant was particularly focused on that idea of how do we do good, should we do good, in what ways um, should that be I guess spelt out to people and is there a universal kind of law or rule that we should be following well, this, this kind of gets to the heart of, for example, why Camus was a bit ambivalent when mm. he got lumped in with Sartre because Camus, as I've already mentioned, got involved in the resistance and, and Camus was very concerned about, okay, so where does morality com- come from in a world where kind of God explanations seem to be unavailable or unconvincing to increasing numbers of people? And Camus' answer very simply is that we're all in this together um, and so solidarity becomes a primary value for Camus, who was a, a democratic socialist, I think he would say. Um, but his criticism of Sartre, carried out at various points, is that if we're just free, we're free to do anything. So what obligations do we have to others? Existentialism in Sartre's form gives you obligations to yourself. Be honest with yourself. Don't make excuses. You're the person who's responsible for your own life. But does it give you any compelling obligations to other people? Now, this is probably going to lead into where I'm going tonight because the other famous existentialist 
and the father of existentialism was Martin Heidegger. Mm. Um, and one of the motivations of my talk tonight is the revelation since really the 80s, but with growing momentum and seriousness since the late 90s about the extent of Heidegger's uh, engagement with, enthusiasm for and uh, entanglement with uh, German National Socialism known to the rest of the world yep. as Nazism. Yeah, And that's with the uh, release of the Black Notebooks, which are a really important text now for a number of philosophers, but also, from my perspective, historians, because um, funnily enough, one of my research areas is the Folk and Volksgemeinschaft, and this particular text from Heidegger is so invaluable, really, as, in terms of his usage of certain languages in the 30s that kind of um, encapsulates and perpetuates this idea of um, a national community and uh, a vital body that is the German people that was so scarily, uh, I guess, racist. What are the kind of things that Heidegger did put into his black notebooks that people have found so controversial and fascinating? Look, this is difficult material to talk about um, because some of the material is, is frankly very, very, very dark. Mm. Um, Amy's just really introduced very well. I guess if you like the kind of the positive side to Heidegger's um, national socialism, if you can use that term, in the sense that there's a sense of um, the need to identify with a community mm. and I think we can all identify with that. It, however, turns out that Heidegger loads up that community with with quite a lot of historical material which comes from his own time. Now, we have this idea that philosophers should call into question all of the conventions and values of their own time, but philosophers are human beings and we don't always do that. Heidegger doesn't call into question the idea that Germany has a particular destiny as the country of great poets and great philosophers and also, in his imagination, a country which has what he thinks is a linguistic and spiritual connection with ancient Greece. And Heidegger has a big story to tell about Western history which says that since the ancient Greeks, things haven't been going terribly well. So who do you look to to overturn the problems with what he conceives to be sort of modern nihilism, this is the term that he uses. He's talking about the growth of technology, the loss of a sort of sense of meaning, the the failure of revealed religions to any longer unite people. He has those very conservative anxieties. Where he moves in a kind of Nazi direction, frankly, is he starts thinking, well, who's going to get us out of this mess as he perceives it? Mm. And his answer is, well, it's going to be, it has to be the Germans because they have a connection with the first beginning of Western history where it went wrong. We've got to go back to the start and we've got to redo it. And so when, about 1930, he, he, he re begins to embrace Nazism, he has some pretty high expectations. He thinks that Nazism is going to enable the German folk to break out of the modern world. Um, unfortunately, um, the dark side of this is that the folk has external and internal enemies. Mm. And in order for it to fulfil its historical mission, it's going to need to uh, clean up its shop. Um, and here's where the really dark material comes into into focus. And perhaps I'll let Amy prompt me, but readers yeah. can imagine where this might go. Yeah, it's definitely a slippery slope, which he fully follows and does develop. Um, I'm not going to actually read out one of the quotes that I was reading just then because it's pretty horrible and I don't think it's probably 
great for me to say, but I think you should read it because I don't want to censor people, but I also don't want to give it too much air. But it is scary because he does specifically single out uh, the Jewish people and focus on elements like blood, which I know, of course, uh, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis were focused on. And there was huge amounts of um, social Darwinism and eugenics involved in this kind of theory. Uh, But it is interesting from a historian kind of perspective that we have this primary document that is prior to Hitler coming to power, really, or at the time of it all kind of happening um, because it's just one more source that seeks to explain how a country could get caught up in a theory and a worldview that is so deadly and so uh, discriminatory and creating an in-group and an out-group. What are your thoughts around how the philosophical community has responded to Heidegger? Because Sartre's got being in nothingness and we've also got Heidegger, which is being in time. And he has been a very influential philosopher for a number of years for that particular text. Look, that's a really difficult question. And again, um, yeah. Um, look, I, I don't know whether we fully come to terms with it. Um, I want to be careful. I don't want to be ungenerous. Mm. Um I, Amy's talked a little bit about her background. My, my background was, was philosophy and history, and, and I still work across that, that barrier. And I was morbidly fascinated with the Holocaust, and I did a minor in, in history, including a big focus on that. Mm. Um, so I, I've kind of always... And, and the, other, the other side to the story is I was taught that Heidegger was the greatest philosopher of the 20th century. And uh, this is sort of... I'll put a vintage on myself, early, <laughs> early 90s. Not a lot of this had come out, and my teacher, who I, who I loved and still love, sort of said, that's irrelevant, it's not important. But that was mm. before the lectures came out from the 30s, the letters came out from across his life, and now these these notebooks. And look, I mean, the way that Heidegger handled the publication of his work is 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 part of the story, because he died in 76... Oh, stopped really speaking publicly in 66. The Black Notebooks are staged. They come out in 2014, so what? That, that's yeah. 48 years. And in the meanwhile, there's been a slow drip feed of 100 volumes of his stuff, and the really controversial stuff has kind of been back-loaded, back-ended. <laughs> yeah. And so you do have generations of scholars who were taught one story, including myself, and who... You know, are certainly being challenged by this material to to say, okay, what do we do with this? And this is what I'm talking about tonight. What is the relationship between the search for wisdom and what most of us would think is moral monstrosity? Because there really is some ho- uh, quite horrifying material in in the black notebooks and in in the lectures where Heidegger will talk about um, about the need to combat the inner enemy and he will use the term total extermination in a lecture in 1933, 1944, Verlügen which is just really chilling, you mm. know. Um, and then there's, you know, further revelations. It gets really quite dark quite quickly about what Heidegger knew about the Shoah and then how he responded to it after the war. And so I, I think we've been given this this challenge. Um, we could be so I can say it's an opportunity. Um, I'm wrestling with it. Uh, I'm wrestling with it tonight in in my paper. Um, my argument is going to be that we should resist the temptation which some have gone down, I, which I, I can see it's there, is to say a philosopher can't say this stuff. And the fact that Heidegger said this must mean that he's not a philosopher. 
I don't think that's quite right. At least I want to sort of stay in the game a bit longer and work out how a really smart, intelligent person can nevertheless embrace what seems to be high on the list of kind of evil actions. Um, Mm. It's not comfortable. I don't like (laughs) doing it, but I don't feel like... I just I feel something's compelling me to try and have a shot at it. Yeah. Mm, mm. yeah. And I think the whole exercise of philosophy tries to grapple with reason and logic and think things through in a in a rational fashion whether or not that sometimes is successful or not. But given that that is really an important part of the study of philosophy and argumentation between people, it's kind of a bit, I guess, a bit harder when you think that someone's being quite irrational in their sense of um, having these kind of biases that are so overt and clear throughout their work. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, philosophy is about reasoning and, and you sort of think, I think a lot of us think when we start philosophy, I, by, by doing this, I'm going to become a better person. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to filter my beliefs. I'm going to learn techniques to monitor my beliefs. I'm going, to, mm. I'm going to stop making stupid statements. I'm going to stop forming ungrounded beliefs. And um, unfortunately, the, the picture might not be that quite, quite that simple. <laughs> I mean, if you have a set of beliefs that are kind of, let's say, heavily biased, discriminatory, you can use reason to draw consequences from those beliefs and that reasoning might be quite sound. It's just that your premises, to use a technical term, mm. are a little bit skew-if. And let's let's say radical discriminatory anti-Semitism for me is high on the lists of things that is, you know, is, is actually irrational. But how you call it irrational and why is worth thinking about because mm. Heidegger didn't think it was irrational. Um, He's got some very, very uh, uh, traditional German Catholic rural kind of beliefs about about the Jews that he's brought up with, and he doesn't call into question. And they are essentialist beliefs about a German nation and a Jewish nation. And I think that as a philosopher, you should call into question those kinds of beliefs. Do entire populations have particular character traits. Now, I don't think that if you observe the world, you're going to find good evidence for that. But Heidegger in the 30s and 40s, he's talking about the German essence being under attack. He's talking about the essentially Jewish, the metaphysical Jewish, all these kinds of notions which I just think a philosopher, as I understand it, should really just go, hang on, what am I saying? Heidegger didn't. Yes, yeah, and it certainly is a sign of the times, given that we were um, post World War One, moving into World War Two, and um, the I guess stab in the back kind of myths that were around um, in Germany post World War One, when people were really um, being quite unfair and wrong in accusing Jews of not pulling their weight in World War One, which is certainly not the case uh, when historians have actually examined the facts. Just on a lighter note, to <laughs> lift things Let's a do little. Yeah, Um, I did. I I remember a little anecdote. Uh, This is showing how old I am from 2010. And it stuck with me for a while now because um, a philosopher, just for fun, looked at uh, library books that were philosophical in Britain and American universities. And uh, they actually realised, they looked at the status of all of these books and they realised that um, the 
professors and advanced students that took out all the books, it was an academic collection, the classical ethics books, so the ones pre-1900, were more likely to have been never returned or stolen <laughs> than any of the other philosophical oh, subjects. Oh, gosh. There you have it. So I just thought that was a little funny <laughs> mini study that was undertaken. Probably says nothing, really, but um, I just thought it was a really funny, possibly coincidence, but... Um, as, yeah, it, as it shows, yeah. philosophers aren't really holier than thou, so you don't need to worry. Uh, we're not looking down on anyone by talking about philosophy. We're all in the in the boat together, as you mentioned with Albert Camus. Yeah, well, I mean, this this idea of um, yeah, one being aware that by becoming a philosopher, you're not kind of ascending into the Empyrean or up to the top of Mount Olympus. It's one of the things I'm going to talk about because I think that that can be, or at least it can intersect with some pretty evil generative beliefs. So, you know, plumbers are really good at being plumbers, but not a lot of plumbers think that they're better than everybody else for being plumbers. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who does philosophy thinks that they're better than others, Mm. um, but philosophy, because it lays claim to to wisdom... um, I call it a vocational hazard in my paper tonight. It's a vocational hazard to go, well, these other people don't think about these deep questions. Mm. I think about these deep questions. I know other people who think about these deep questions. We must be, in some terribly important sense, uh, more important than other people. Now, I I think that's a profoundly problematic belief, and I, I think Amy's anecdote about philosophers who may or may not and we may even know people who've done this um who don't return library books i may even know somebody uh, quite closely who's done this um would suggest that actually getting really smart doesn't necessarily make you universally better in all sorts of ways Yeah. yeah it doesn't build a conscience or create a moral character just by studying theory does it It would be a lot easier if if you could just teach an ethics course and all your students were saints. (laughs) (laughs) That's very funny. Um, I I do subscribe to utilitarianism in a way. I know there are many forms of it, um, but I certainly think it does make a lot of sense. But, yeah, it it can also be controversial. One of the things I want to bring us back to before we also touch on Camus in a bit more detail, in terms of existentialism, and we've kind of focused a little bit on the, I guess, um, issues with it in the sense of that moral element and you know if we are free to act and we d- and life doesn't have meaning and we're creating meaning well you know that means we're in the wild west well there's another kind of element that I think captured my imagination at the time and I'm interested in whether this was for you the same um, thing happened for you I was interested and I remember the exact moment when <laughs> Chris Cordner delivered this lecture and he told me about this anecdote, um, an example where uh, someone acts cowardly and they've done something that they are ashamed of because it was, you know, really embarrassing and they acted with cowardice. Then some people might label that person a coward and someone might think, well, that's fixed now. You know, that's who I am. I'm a coward. I've done a cowardly act. That's who I am. Um, But the example of existentialism is 
you have done that once, but that does not make you a coward. You can change your behaviour, decide to do anything else and act in another way, and it's just an action. It doesn't reflect on your character because there is no fixed essence. It means that you are not kind of bound to a certain way of being. You can liberate yourself, I guess, is what Sartre is saying, and use your free will, but you need to make sure you're always acting in, and he uses these terms, good faith. Did you ever kind of latch onto that and, you know, maybe you've progressed since and and kind of, you know, thought it was a little bit silly or or changed your mind. But initially when I heard that, it just made me think, well, that's kind of true (laughs) to an extent. Because as Sartre says, even if you're imprisoned in in a prison cell, you are imprisoned within the cell, but within that cell you actually have free will to do a range of things. I think it's part of the story. I mean... You know, I, there's there's dangers to it. You know, I mean, you mm. can say, well, look, I did a cowardly act, and that was yesterday. Um, but you know what? I'm free, and today, that doesn't reflect on me at all. And and I think Sartre, in his defence, would say that that's a form of bad faith. You mm, do have to yes. say, well, when you look at the evidence, what I did yesterday actually was cowardly. So other people have every right to to say that my action was cowardly. But you do have the ability to, as Sartre would say, transcend what you were. Um, and make a different choice the next time you're in a situation where maybe you're facing a choice which is involves fear and, and therefore, you know, it involves courage and therefore potential cowardice. You can mm. act differently. Um, I mean, there are problems with the radical freedom idea, which um, um, I'm sure, Amy, you know, you... you, you I guess you would have thought through, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. like I, I'm smoking for 40 years and <laughs> Sartre tells me that I'm free to not smoke and unfortunately things aren't quite that simple. My hands are shaking. I'm on edge. Um, I'm treating my family members <laughs> not very well because I'm sort of, you know, wired. Um, there's physiological and other kind of... Um, mm. Constraints. Constraints, yeah. yeah. They're definitely constraints. And, and you know, the, the, the old classical idea is every time you do a cowardly act, it, it does just leave a little bit of a gro- groove on your character machine. Mm. And so the next time you're going to have a little bit more of an inclination to be cowardly next time. So the only way you can kind of overcome that constraint is by starting to do something else. And I think the truth is, is you know, it's got to involve both. Mm. Yeah, you are responsible, you can change, but... Part of that is, yeah, if if you don't act in a certain way, you're going to create bad habits and then it's going to be a heck of a lot harder. Yeah. 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 It's certainly, you don't want to make it sound like it's an easy thing to do, which sometimes when people will read that will go, oh, well, you know, I can, and it makes me think of the American dream where it's that idea of, oh, well, you're poor, you can be rich. You just need to work harder and take better actions. Yeah. That's obviously very false. Um, Herbert Marcuse, a a contemporary of Sartre mm. and obviously a Marxist, he sort of made this comment about Sartre's philosophy, you know, it's good news for the poor that, they're free to be rich. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't change the fact that they're poor. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there's a, an entire system dedicated to keeping them poor. Exactly. And again, let's be fair to Sartre. He did, mm. in his later work, move in a, in a different direction, which yes. acknowledged that, yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we're talking about Sartre, we often hear about Albert Camus because they were associates, they knew each other, they were living and working at various times in the same area. Um, that said, Albert Camus actually did was not born in France. 
he was born in Algeria. And I think that's a really interesting element to his background and it certainly is reflected through his writing. Um, I tried to reacquaint myself with The Plague, which um, is something that you have written about in your books and journal articles and um, focused on the elements where evil is present and this discussion of morals. And um, The Plague, for those who aren't aware, certainly is really important and um, reflected, I guess, an important time in history in about 1947, um, which is just after World War II. And it really is an important kind of... Is it? Would you characterise it as an allegory or something that is um, reflective of the French experience under Nazi occupation? Yeah, I, I think that's that's um, something that Camus is is pretty open about in interviews and and so on. Yeah, so it's basically about a city in Algeria that gets struck by the plague, and then the authorities and this is you know again pretty timely, I guess. Mm. The authorities respond by quarantining the city. And then within the city, various quarantining and other measures um, are undertaken. This thing lasts for the course of a year and those measures progressively become more radical and the parallels with Nazism and the extermination camps become more and more apparent because crematoria are set up to incinerate bodies, uh, people are isolated from their families. And it's a way of Camus addressing... What happens when you're living under a, a totalitarian regime, um, the way that the law begins to operate in a way that isolates people from each other, that um, that uses terror in order to try and um, coerce people to act in very predictable ways, uh, ways that enable social and political control, um, but also have terrible human consequences isolation, separation from loved ones, the inability to carry out friendships, the inability to carry out love relationships. If your partner gets sick, they get whisked off in the night um, uh, and, and you're not able to see them again perhaps until, well, if ever mm. in some cases. So, again, it's, it's a heavy, it's a dark allegory and it's Camus reflecting on on, on, on the French resistance and the French situation under Nazi rule from, what, 41 to 44 and 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 trying to let people know that lest we ever think of embracing that kind of government again, which of course would never happen, that this is how it works and these are the consequences. In the last lines of the book, the main character's walking through the streets and people are celebrating, the plague is gone, and the character says, well, yes, but he knew, he couldn't celebrate because he knew that the plague, Basilis, would just become dormant. It would hide in bookshelves, in um, in cupboards, to await another fine day where rats will issue out onto the streets and we'd be facing this possibility again. And I mean, I'm profoundly concerned, like many people around the world, when you look at what's happening in Europe, when you even look mm. at what's happening in the United States, there are tendencies, there are tendencies which I think if Camus was alive he would be profoundly concerned about. Yeah, yeah, he would. And there are a number of um, societies over in uh, Denmark, for example, that have seen a kind of anti-immigration, a really um, pro-nationalist, um, particularly white element. And that to me is, was shocking when I saw a documentary recently about that because often you will think of those countries in the Nordic 
region broadly as being quite socially progressive and open-minded and being often seen as an example to the rest of us. Yeah, I just read an article about Bernie Sanders um, talking about, uh, this, this is in the Washington Post, about the Nordic model. Mm. Evidently, Bernie's not talking about <laughs> that, that, <model. laughs> that scenario. He's yes. talking about um, free education, the idea that education's a public good. He's talking about robust welfare systems. He's talking about the aspiration for full employment, mm. um, you know, not loading down your future generations with crippling student debt, trying to make housing affordable. But, you know, this is one of the, the, the things that is true, that even in countries which do have these relatively progressive, um, you know, social policies, these far-right, uh, far-right, far-right um, <laughs> groups are in some cases making significant electoral advances. And they're using that as a way of excluding. They're saying, well, we've got all these good things, so what we need to be really careful about is who we let in. We don't want the unworthy others coming in and getting access to free education, welfare and so on and so forth. Um, and, I mean, I, I, I didn't read that article, but I understand that's the way that that is playing in those those countries. Yeah, yeah. Um, drawing on an element of uh, Camus that I hadn't really been aware of, um, you wrote a blog post or article around his links with Stoicism, which I think has captured the imagination of a number of people in the general public. Um, obviously, some people may have read Marcus Aurelius, and that's why they have um, been, you know, interested in that uh, movement and philosophy. Um, and I know yourself, you're also quite interested in it uh, personally. How do you link Albert Camus and his um, ideas and work with Stoicism? And for those of us who haven't discussed it um, in that much depth or thought about it, what what does Stoicism mean to you? Okay, so there's a couple of questions there. Um, Camus, in, in uh, when he was 17, um, he's running around. He's a good-looking sort of young guy. He's playing soccer. Um, he's the first of his family to even make school, um, but he's going really well at school. He's recognised as, as, as a great talent. One day he starts bleeding through the mouth and he's diagnosed with tuberculosis and he's told by his doctor that he might have a, a, a week to live. At this point... On the, on the advice of his his teacher and mentor, he mm. reads a Stoic philosopher by the name of Epictetus. Epictetus was a, a Roman slave. He was a cripple um, who nevertheless became kind of the most celebrated philosopher of his time. Um, and, and Epictetus is a Stoic. And, and obviously, you know, the, the way that Stoicism plays in kind of common language is Stoicism is, it's got something to do with dealing with hardship, like, mm. for example, being told you're going to die. Um, and that's true. Um, Stoicism's a life philosophy. It emerges in kind of later Greek antiquity or medium to late Greek antiquity. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, really interesting. It's founded by a guy who who it was a trader. He loses all his goods um, in a sea voyage. He comes to Athens and he starts studying philosophy with the cynics. Ra-di-ra. What is it all about? Mm. It's, it's about a philosophy that tries to teach you to live in accordance with nature as they conceive it. Great, Matthew, what does that mean? That means that there's a key distinction that you should try to make and that distinction is is there are things in your control and there are a heck of a lot of things that aren't in your control. You need to focus on what you can control and you need to learn to accept and let go what you can't control. In between, you've got to learn to try your best to, to make 
you know, a good contribution to the world and it's a very social philosophy, but you do have to recognise that other people won't necessarily buy everything you're going to do. Mm. They're not necessarily even going to like you. Um, there's a heck of a lot that's out of your control. I use this, this analogy, which is helpful. Like, so you want to be an archer and you want to go to the Olympics. You spend your life training. You're a gun archer. You're like Robin Hood. And in the decisive moment, the gold medal shot, you hit the perfect shot and the wind blows and your arrow misses. That's life. Mm. Um, and at that point, you've got to accept that you've done everything you can do. Um, and as for the wind blowing, that's, they would say, Zeus's responsibility. <laughs> it's not yours. And so the whole thing is built around that kind of structure. And, and they talk about the kind of indifference you have to have to other, other, um, other things. And that sounds really callous and it's not a great translation. It sort of means that things that happen outside in the world that you can't control are neither good nor evil as far as you're concerned. They're in between. Um, they can be good, but it depends what you do with them. You know, mm. Having lots of money, like, like most people think that's, that's amazing, right? But what happens if you cultivate a, a drug habit? What happens if you move in with people who are only interested in friendship with you because of your money, who try to exploit you? All sorts of bad things can happen, right? Yeah. And the only thing that Stokes says is, is always good is is the ability to kind of live well and live well with others. As I say, it is a social philosophy. You should be concerned about your own kind of well-being and those of you who you love, your friends, your community, and ultimately... Um, they're a cosmopolitan philosophy. So ultimately, everybody, right, every human being participates in the game as far as the Stoics are concerned. And to treat others with contempt, scorn, hatred, dismissal on grounds of what they consider to be utterly contingent skin colour, sexual preference, whatever, from a Stoic perspective, as, as I read Stoicism, that's all bogus, right? Um, what matters is a person's character and their capacity to to participate in a good life and make choices for themselves. Yeah. The rest is whatever. And mm. that's that's what they mean by indifference, right? It's just like you shouldn't get hung up on that stuff. Exactly, yeah. And um, it certainly does make, I guess, a lot of common sense in the sense that it – why should you focus on things beyond your control? Because it's almost quite fruitless, isn't it? To, I mean, you will want to. That's often what the instinct is, to kind of grab on to something that you really wanted or desired or, you know, wanted to go right and then it doesn't. And the instinct is to have a reaction to that. Yeah, that's the hard thing. It's easier to talk about Stoicism than to, than to be a Stoic. And mm. the Stoics in their defence say that nobody's kind of ever been perfect. Like, there is no sage, right? Maybe Socrates was a sage, but he's dead. Um, so <laughs> we can't really test, <laughs> test that theory. Um, and only people who like him tend to write about him. Uh, <laughs> but for the rest of us, it's really hard, you know? You want something to happen and, and disappointment is... Um, is part of part of the game and learning how to deal with it. But the, yeah, the Stoics will kind of give you a bit of a hard lesson. They'll say, "Well, you can worry about it. You can go over it in your head a thousand times, and and that's human. Uh, unfortunately, it's not going to change the situation." I'm trying to teach this to a five year old at the moment, mm. um, my little boy, um, whose name is Marcus, incidentally. <laughs> and Marcus has a way to go before he becomes Marcus in the yeah. Stoic sense. <laughs> Exactly. A f- funny anecdote. The first time I told him that there's no use crying over spilt milk, going, <laughs> Dad Stoic, he, he shouted back at me, yes, there is. Because <laughs> <laughs> it feels better to let out emotion. 
That's right. And it gets attention from mum and dad yep. and there's all sorts of other things. So it's a work in progress. Yeah, yeah. There are certainly things that people get even as adults from reacting, as you say, getting attention, um, yeah, feeling validated. Yeah, it's, a, it's certainly an ongoing process, isn't it? And just it? a release of the frustration, that, mm. you know. Like you, we've seen a lot of tennis racket breaking over the last two and a half weeks, <laughs> uh, for example. Heaps. From a stoic perspective, yeah. that stuff is just kind of pointless, right? Newsflash, your racket is not responsible for your losing the game. You know, that's yeah. what the stoic would say, right? Not easy in the moment, right? Indeed. Well, it was interesting when you were describing a Stoic, I thought of Ash Barty after her loss. Um, she didn't make it into the final and it was really sad, I guess, for her. And I, she, there was a lot of pressure, um, outside pressure on her, although she would say she wasn't focusing on that. But she certainly was just saying, well, I did my best at the time. I can't do anything about it. That's just tennis. You know, in the scheme of life, it's not a big deal. Sounds pretty stoic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's brilliant. I mean, that's kind of 10 out of 10. I mean, if that's how she's managed to kind of handle a situation, I suspect she's surrounded by good people and and, and wise people, Uh, even if they don't necessarily call what they're doing stoic. That reaction is kind of – that's like – 10 out of 10. Mm. Um, But you do hear this in sports psychology. You do hear a lot of we can only focus on what we're doing and what the other guy does or what the other team does or what the other girl does. That's up to them. That's kind of – that's pretty basic. That's actually pretty stoic stuff. Yeah, 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 it is. Um, Matthew, to close out our discussion, um, if you were to recommend – a text, uh, one philosophical text and one Albert Camus text. I'm going to separate them out just for our purposes. What would you do for those wanting to get interested in in philosophy? Gosh, that's really tough. I'll start with the Camus. Um, I mean, everybody loves The Outsider and mm. most, well, a lot of people at school or university have encountered it in one form or another. You, you can do a lot worse than that. It's probably not a book of philosophy. For Camus, his best book of philosophy is The Rebel. It's a little more advanced, um, but that's really his attempt to confront the reality of evil and of genocide. So, again, it's not what I call to my students a first date reading, <laughs> um, but uh, it's 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 a very, very profound and... and um, and an important book. Gosh, the, you know, it really depends on where people are coming from in terms of what to, to kind of use to, to get into to philosophy. You know, some people read Marcus Aurelius and, you know, they pick it up on a self-help sh- shelf and, and that's kind of what gets them into it. But, mm. you know, I mean, obviously there are, there is lots of different things. Um, that and kind different of, forms, aren't there? Because there's yeah, aphorisms and essays. That's right, yeah. People like um, Michelle de Montaigne, people yeah. might read because they have short kind of bite-sized... Thank you for mentioning Montaigne. Let's mm. just go with Montaigne. I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, seriously, yeah. like, um, he's just a lovable human being. And um, particularly those early ones... They're short, nice and short. He gets longer as he goes goes on. We all probably do in terms of we ramble more. But yeah. he's, I, I think you could do a heck of a lot worse than pick up Montaigne's essays or a selection and yeah. and make a friend basically, which that's kind of how most of us end up feeling about Montaigne. So there's, there's heavy-duty theoretical stuff, yeah. but there's also stories about his cat. Yeah. It's that kind of book. And he's so 
really, I guess, interesting in the sense that he, a lot of people kind of mythologize him and talk about how he had this library and, you know, it's like he locked himself away with all these books and then came up with these fantastic essays, which probably I'm guessing is simplistic um, explanation of his life. But he was a very kind of internal person and you do get to access a lot of his internal thinking that often, you know, a philosopher would not share. Yeah, that's He's the first person. He's like a diarist. Like, yeah. you really do get to know. Like, he's got a gastric complaint. He does ramble on about that a bit towards <laughs> the end there. But you know, you really, you know, he, his conversations with his servants. Um, you get to find out about his his best friend, and his best friend died when he was quite young. And yeah. there's a really moving essay about their friendship. He lifts the lid on this idea that we philosophers can't talk about mundane stuff. He's going to take you into his his life, his upbringing. talks a lot about an accident. He had a horse riding accident where he thought he was going to die. He kind of blacked out. And the good news is people that his his near-death experience was extremely pleasant. Mm. So he, he coming back from beyond the grave, he tells us we shouldn't worry about death because it was actually, I mean, I guess he was full of endorphins, but everyone was really worried. He was semi-conscious and he was blissed out. Yeah. Um, and that's the kind of anecdote that, that he'll give you. But then he'll reflect on that. Like, say, what does that mean? We worry about death. Maybe we shouldn't. Yeah. Maybe at a certain point nature takes over and says, my time now, and you just get to relax. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, he has really interesting perspectives. That's um, if people want to, to look him up, it's Michelle as in M-I-C-H-E-L, de, D-E, Montagne is M-O-N-T-A-I-G-N-E. Um, and he's obviously French. Uh, it's very accessible. You can get them from like those, you know, black uh, penguin kind of paperback uh, pieces, the classics, penguin classics, very easily. Um, and I'm sure there are others who've published his work. No doubt you could probably even get the the like out of copyright um, ones from various online sources. Yeah, you can probably get a copy for like six bucks yeah. from Book Depository or something like that. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Or your library. They should have a copy, surely. Or online. Everything's online. online. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Good times. Now, for people <laughs> who want to get into some um, serious reflection when and what we really were discussing at the beginning of this interview was the discussion about existentialism and evil, which is the and philosophy and evil, um, they're the kind of subjects you're going to look at, particularly as you've mentioned Martin Heidegger and the Black Notebooks and how we reflect on um, massive kind of events that we would think of as evil like genocide, um, whereas there's this kind of seemingly arbitrary death um, that should not occur that is uh, perpetuated by people and, and how that happens and why that happens. Um, there's so much clearly to think about. Um, how do people get along to your talk now, Amy, I'm going to lean on you here. East Melbourne, yep. 8 o'clock. Um, I couldn't tell you the street address. I'm, I'm, oh, I was going to I check my that. email. It's um, the Unitarian Church that's Hall, the one. 110 Grey Street, East Melbourne. And I did check, and apparently um, there's coffee and discussion at 7, and then the lecture starts at 8. Is that right? I think that's the case. There's yep. kind of a bit of a social yeah, thing there first. Is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And it's free, and you don't need to book. So even better, just a you gold can just rock donation, up. I think, from memory. Yeah, yeah, which would be that. fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so if you want more details, you can go to existentialistmelbourne.org um, to see Matthew's lecture, which is entitled "Philosophy and Evil Tonight." It's all going to be happening. 
Oh, Very it's going to be a lot of fun, Amy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, honestly, I, 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 working on this is not easy. I mean, no. it feels like you've got a rat dying in your stomach when you read some of this stuff. It, yeah. It's just awful. But I, either you turn away, and that's one of the things I can talk about. One yeah. of the things about evil is it likes to hide in the, in the dark. Mm. And so one of the impulses we have is to turn away. Yeah. And I think we need to be a little careful of that. I think you need to bring it to light if it's not going to happen again. Yeah. I think from like people who study these things like the Holocaust, it's really hard to sit with primary sources from the Nazi side. And I had to read through SS soldier diaries yeah, like wow. for days on end. And I, yeah, at the end of it had this massive cloud over me because it was just so it'll, harrowing. It'll damage you at least temporarily, yeah. psychologically. Yeah, and you have to yeah. break yourself out of it and just be like, I need to just completely think of something else and, you know, have a, a big mental break but yeah it is something as you say that some people select people need to sit with in order for us as a society to make sure we don't forget and to make sure we learn our lessons and I think that's what a lot of historians at least have been saying recently with uh, Britain leaving the EU and that as well as to not forget why Europe and the Union was created in the first place and how that came to be. For all the flaws of the existing yes, model, absolutely, exactly, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah just one one yeah. fun philosophy quote from a from Milan Kundera. You know, the the battle against tyranny is the struggle of memory against forgetting. I what mean, a great I, quote! I really like Kundera. I think it's mm. a, it's one of those ones that's easy to say, but it's actually it stands up when you think about it again and again. I reckon. Yeah, yeah absolutely, Matthew. It's been so fascinating to chat with you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be so generous and explaining and sharing your passion in philosophy with us. Because um, I think it is important that it's accessible and that people are able to think about it if it's something that they um, are interested about, but maybe daunted by. Because um, I wouldn't be surprised if anyone felt daunted. My pleasure. Absolutely. Really appreciate it. I've been speaking with Dr. Matthew Sharp. He's an associate professor in philosophy at Deakin University. So no doubt you could study under Matthew's guidance if you were interested, and maybe you even have um, in the past or at the moment. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.